to Supply Chain Next with your host, Richard Donaldson. Join us as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges professionals face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Welcome here to uh, International Supply Chain Day recording. Super excited to have you all here. Uh, uh, here we are checking in in year two. Um, the whole point of today is really just for all of us to get together and talk about some of our unique observations around what's going on in the march to circularity and 50% circular by the end of the decade. Uh, and I also want to kind of kick it off by uh, telling everybody we've got you know a great panel here of industry experts and also global uh, in participation, right? So we got a couple people in North America, we got Europe. The only thing we're missing here is Asia Pack, but that's probably a little bit hard on the timing uh, for all this sort of stuff. So we've got Kyle Ritchie here uh, out of Chicago. Uh, we've got Lisa Morales uh, out of New York and Mark DeWitt uh, out of the Netherlands. Um, I think everybody can see them if you can on the live. Um, and so I just want to start by thanking everyone for participating. I'm going to go through a little bit here and just say hi to each one of you individually. And then we'll kind of get into a group discussion around what's going on in International Supply Day and each of your observations. Uh, and then kind of a free form. And if we're lucky enough with the live streaming, maybe we'll get some people from outside uh, who, who might be tuning in uh, to give us some Q&A or anything that's going on. So that'd be kind of fun. So I'm going to start with Lisa. Um, but Lisa, I think this is, you and I, uh, this is our first time actually chatting in real time. I think we've known each it other is. virtually forever. So, <laughs> so, so thankful you and your partner, Brian, have founded Refashion. But we'd love to hear, if you don't mind, actually, a little bit just about you. Uh, a little introduction, you know, about you and what's going on with Refashioned and what you've kind of been up to, because uh, I think it's such an amazing story. <laughs> sure thing. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, Refashioned is... Um, a reflection of basically my entire life's work. <laughs> no big deal, you know, 20, 27 years in tech uh, by way of Carnegie Mellon, design degree with a little C++ and Mosaic, econ, et cetera. A stint out in Silicon Valley during the first dot-com boom back in 99. And yes, I'm, I'm 12 or was 12 when I was. <laughs> and um, I was fortunate enough to really cut my teeth in the Valley um, after helping scale a content management software company from 20 people to 150 in a year and exit. And really dove into data structures, taxonomy, scalable architecture. And when I went out to the Valley, I was lucky enough to work at a company that was spun out of Procter and Gamble and uh, backed by PNG and Redpoint Ventures, pioneering the space of mass customization, personalization, and on-demand micromanufacturing, one of one products across cosmetics, skincare, hair care, and fine fragrance, all the way back in 1999. So I have a 22-year head start on the rest of the world in really truly understanding this space and uh, developing consumer-facing experiences around it. Um, I created the first peer-to-peer -peer marketing campaigns before there was social using real women and um, created the first virtual personal shopper using data after a consumer created one product. We'd extract hex values based on their data set and push through Macromedia Generator to create on-the-fly graphics of products that didn't exist till they clicked through to purchase it. And then we created whole cosmetic sets to go with their um, specific to them and then matching to outfits. So I was just a 26-year-old kid having the time of my life playing with all these fun things and quadrupling revenue. And the CEO of the company at the time said, do whatever Lisa says. So I got to present to the board, including A.G. Laffley. And at 26, having a board presentation, A.G. coming over and shaking your hand was like, oh, clouds parted, angels sang. And I was like, I want to do this forever. <laughs> so, um, so that's what I've done. I have been obsessed with um, on-demand and customization, personalization throughout my career. I have uh, architected a contextual search engine that was for algorithmically generating outfits on the fly that got into Techstars, raised a little bit of venture capital, realized that VCs don't know boo about fashion or retail, let alone supply chain. And um, I got really silly comments when I was trying to raise capital for my contextual search engine, people assuming that I wanted to become a girl boss and a celebrity female founder. I'm like, ah, I'm a, I'm a data nerd. I built real IP, real tech here. It's the future of search and chose to shut down that company instead of um, 
selling it or taking on $4 million from a fund that wanted to turn me into Sophia Amorosa, a celebrity style talking head. Um, so shut down that company and founded the New York Fashion Tech Lab in 2014. Really wanted to um, kind of have the experience I wish uh, I, I could have had when I had my own fashion tech company, created a, the first fashion tech accelerator connecting all the major brands and retailers directly with the companies looking to serve them, having their C-suite hand select the companies that they thought would add the most value to their bottom line. So those C-suite executives, I learned talking behind closed doors with them for the better part of a year, couldn't care less if their company is the reason the planet burned to the ground or if their company went under in five years because they were jumping jobs every two to three. And I got angry. You know, first of all, I made this to help you industry, dragging this horse to water. If you want drink, maybe you all deserve to drown. So I left after the first cohort to study the apparel supply chain on my own dime for a year, tied everything back to what I had learned and done in Silicon Valley 20 years prior and looking forward to the fourth industrial revolution, came up with my thesis that we are at a point in time where the single largest operating system to ever exist, um, digitization of supply chains is just now starting. And um, the focus of supply chains should be on shifting from supply chains to localized demand chains with circular infrastructure. So producing one of one products with circular regenerative um, raw materials. So. That's what I'm up to. And Brian and I founded Refashion Ventures to invest in these early stage supply chain innovations across data, AI, advanced materials, advanced manufacturing, and advanced logistics. Four or three of those four things involve physical atoms, which VCs are like terrified of, but we are not gonna decarbonize this planet with software alone. And so on top of Refashion Ventures, we also have the worldwide, oh, here, the Worldwide Supply Chain Federation, <laughs> um, global community of 4,300 members around the world, supply chain enthusiasts, we call them our builders and buyers that come together to have real dialogues around the best of emerging innovations to help them scale and gain adoption faster than the world is trying to <laughs> scale them. And then I'm also CEO and founder of Refashioned OS, which is our operating company that is actually deploying made in the USA localized demand chains for apparel with on-demand production, um, basically connecting existing factories and helping them to digitize and uh, adopt these best practices for on-demand with real-time through capacity load bearing across all of their uh, infrastructure. Lisa, I okay, so I just need to take a breath there. You take a breath. I need to take a breath. That is a hell of a background. And I'm a mom. I have two yeah. boys that are teenagers now. How many? How many? Two. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So let's just add and then, you know, throw some marathons in there and God knows what else, right? So we'll get a few other things. Uh, but that's, that's what a background. And by the way, and, and Mark, Kyle, you guys can certainly, you know, chime in or whatever if you've got questions. But my very first question, though, Lisa, is, you know, such a, an amazing perspective. But if I'm not mistaken, you and Brian founded Refashioned around, I think it was 2018-ish, 2019, is that? Uh, so we first came together. We met in 2016. We founded the Worldwide Supply Chain Federation in 2017. We founded the fund really in 2019, end of 2019. And then it took us a long time just to get to the rolling fund, which just launched in July of 2021. And so we have a year of investments under the rolling fund, have done 16 deals. Wow. Good for you guys. I mean, congratulations on all of that. And certainly, but, but the, whereas leading with the question is, you, you, I mean, you have auspicious timing, right? Timing is kind of everything, right? And we can all predict the wave crashing at some point, but honestly, that wave is going to crash when it crashes, right? But you're, 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 all of us are sitting here and you sit, not only did you get into, you know, segue into supply chain, but then also supply chain investing literally two, three, four years, five years before the inflection point really started shifting, which is where I think we are today. So the question to you is in kind of reflecting on what you've seen over the last three, four, five years, certainly from an investment point of view, what are you seeing? I mean, it's, it, it's sort of a self-evident question, but the enthusiasm around supply chain, supply chain investments, and then also kind of a lack of clarity on how to invest in supply chain. I mean, you're bringing that in. Trust me, I'm, I, this is a loaded question because we've dealt with it too. But 
you know, how do, how do you kind of view that and what, what's happening around us, right? Because you've been at it for so long and it's like, like the world's kind of catching up. Like, how do you reflect? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great that we finally have other people paying attention to it, but it also is simultaneously like this shiny new object, like so many investment um, opportunities. People see the opportunity and then they run into it and they don't have the um, focus or expertise or network or deep understanding of the interconnectedness of supply chains. They're investing in, in individual nodes or incremental pieces that is questionable if they'll actually ever scale because they don't truly understand the the systemic thinking that's required for supply chains. And so um, it's simultaneously a good thing because it's giving us more visibility, but it's also a really sad and disappointing thing that um, people that have been here for years <laughs> focusing on this are, are still struggling to, to raise the capital of volume that we could be deploying compared to the legacy funds that are just now realizing, hey, supply chain looks cool, and they're getting hundreds of millions of dollars to deploy, and they don't know what the hell they're doing. I won't name names, but... <laughs> oh, no, we know. We, we all know them, and they know who they are, and they should be partnering uh, with you. But and, and let me, because this is going to be a springboard question to also kind of loop back into circularity. But, you know, one of the central parts of your thesis was supply chain and circularity. Those words you use very specifically in sort of your, you know, elevator pitch there. And I'm curious because that's that's not always front and center. That's sort of the theme for this entire International Supply Chain Day, which is circularity. But it's also fundamental to how you look at supply chain, even from an investing point of view. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, um, well, supply chains are our systems. And um, I somehow lucked out getting a design degree, design thinking, which really has been applied to systems. And um, we need to look at all of the waste streams that we have been putting out into the world as raw materials and really assess which waste streams are no longer tenable and which waste streams should be um, made circular. For example, with apparel, which is the lens that I look at supply chains through just because I've been obsessed with it since I was a little girl and have a bit of experience in their infrastructure. Um, we do not need to be growing any more fibers, <laughs> frankly, at all. And so this whole focus on GOT certified cotton and regenerative farming for GOT certified, that's fabulous, but really neither here nor there. there. If we really looked at solving the issues, we need to just be investing in circular regeneration of existing fibers. We're sitting on generations worth of raw materials of fibers, especially in the US where we produce four times the textile waste of any other country in the world. We used to ship it overseas, they don't want it anymore. They're sitting on mountains of US textile waste. And so we have to figure out how to reuse this asset that we have poured money into creating and bringing into this world and then we throw away. Um, I think that's the no brainer for circular regeneration within fashion. Right, right. So that is a perfect springboard because now I'm gonna kind of loop over to Mark because this is a great tag into how the circularity gap report really begins to illustrate that, right? And textiles just being one piece of the thousand gigatons of accumulated stuff that can be reused immediately. <laughs> so Mark, I'm going to kind of come over to you a little bit. I mean, a lot of things that Lisa's talking about, both from an, you know, from an investor's point of view, getting into supply chain, focusing on circularity, and certainly the International Supply Chain Day is about tracking, really at the end of the day, kind of, kind of outlining everything you do in your circularity gap report that's coming out annually. I think you've got about four or five years of history there. So, you know, First for the question is, Mark, you know, welcome to the show. You've been here before. So I do want to allow you a little bit of just quick intro on who you are, but then kind of dive in a little bit on sort of just your perspective on the current circularity gap report. And I think that's something that I think is, you know, the audience needs to know about. They needs to know where they can go track that into. And every year we're probably going to be tying ourselves, even in this call, uh, highlighting what the circularity gap report talks about. And it's it's exactly what Lisa was referencing, right? We already have enough stuff. We've already pulled enough stuff out of the earth. Let's reuse it. So, so Mark. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks a lot, uh, Richard, for having me on the show. And, and great, Lisa, to hear your story. I mean, I 
um, have a bit more of kind of a macro story, but I always love really where the rubber hits the road. And I mean, that's where actual change happens. And, and obviously I recognize this from across many uh, different sectors we work with, where it's the build environment, uh, nutrition, agri-food, um, everywhere. Um, yeah, really briefly, I mean, we chatted two weeks ago, uh, but my um, uh, first steps kind of into this space, weirdly enough, were in, in astrophysics, where I started to, uh, what I started to study, really in an, in an attempt to understand and make sense of the world, but I very quickly pivoted to uh, sustainability, sustainability of energy, how do we run our energy system, our, our materials, um, et cetera. I later on focused on the bio-based economy. So how can we, with the agricultural lands that we have, supply enough food, but also, um, as you mentioned, kind of fiber for textiles, timber for construction, um, and all of that in a sustainable way with more uh, people on this, uh, on this planet. Um, then moved into kind of uh, business consulting, working with really kind of resource intensive companies and see how could they uh, be a part of, of that sustainable future. Um, but then 10 years ago, uh, we founded Circle Economy. So we're based in Amsterdam, only 60 people. Uh, we do projects globally at this point. Uh, we work with, with businesses, but also with cities, uh, with national governments to understand from a data perspective, it's very much data driven, what is flowing through your operations, to your value chain, uh, through your business, through your city, where are the leaks in the system? From the standpoint of materials, where do the materials end up in incineration, landfill, uh, where uh, are emissions uh, occurring, whether that's into the plastic soup or, or into the air. But most importantly, or, or very important as well, uh, to look at the opportunity side in terms of value. So that's really what we what we tried to track. And five years ago, we thought there's so much speak about the circular economy. Everyone is speaking about different business models, et cetera, but it's extremely conceptual. We have no clue where we currently stand. So what we wanted to do uh, with the Circularity Gap Report is to put a stake in the ground and say, hey, how circular are we today? Um, our first uh, assessment was that we're 9.1% circular. So that means of all the materials we use globally, 9% makes it back into the economic system, 91% doesn't. Um, and then our latest uh, number is 8.6. So we're in reverse. Um, all the indicators are in the red. I mean, we're using more stuff. Um, as you said, more than 100 billion tons of stuff um, with, with everyone on this planet every year, um, of which barely 9 billion tons is being reused. And more than 90 billion tons is um, lost in, in whatever shape and form. Um, so, yeah, that's really kind of the premise of what we wanted to do to um, raise attention. But to also, um, as I refer to uh, one of the central diagrams in the, in the report, which I call an X-ray of our global economy, to, to really understand where is this system, this linear system broken, and where are the opportunities to, uh, to fix it? That was... Uh, what we set ourselves up to uh, uh, when we started five years ago, and then ten, ten years ago with the uh, with the organization. So not and, and just just again to also kind of highlight on the day, not exactly the the year after effect going from nine point one to eight point six. We don't want to see a reverse. <laughs> we want to go the other direction. But I mean, more, more importantly, though, at least you're measuring it, and we started a baseline discussion. I think the important factor here is not necessarily that we're at eight or nine percent. It's that we actually have identified and have a way through Mark's organization at Circle Economy to measure this and reflect on this through a report on an annual basis. Because otherwise, if you can't measure it, how are you supposed to improve it? And if we want to get to 50 percent circular by the end of the decade, well, hey, you got to start with these kind of things. So let me ask a question. I mean, it's only been five years, Mark, but is there any insight that you can maybe, you said more production, more consumerism, something, but any insights into why there might have been a little slip or are you more accurate with the data? I mean, you know, first first go around, it's going to be a little rough and then each year it's going to get better and better and better. So five years in, you know, kind of what's driving the small slip? I mean, it's not huge, but what's, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the data is not getting better. So on the global level, you're dependent on aggregations of a million different data points that are being aggregated by World Bank, by uh, statistic bureaus, et cetera. It's, it's, to be honest, quite kind of shaky and, and intransparent data, but we wanted to work with the best data we, we could get our hands on. And I think actually that in 
several on a sectoral level you see improvements to the quality of data but definitely on the global level we need to to do it with the data that we are, that we have uh, provided but the slip is um, I think quite a robust insight whether the data uh, quality or, or not and that has to do with the fact that we consume more and more so if you just look in in 2017 I think we used 20, uh, 92 billion tons of materials every year now it's 100 billion so already in a matter of years um, in 1900 it was 7 billion tons um, since the 1970s we have um, uh, tripled the amount of stuff we use and, and we're really accelerating that and we're not getting much better um, at the end of the chain to get more back into the system or even to keep that level. So we see more fallout of things kind of just being buried underground in landfill, incinerated, um, plastic soup dispersed into the environment. So we're not able to get our stuff together at the end of the chain while we are um, continue to consume more and more and, had, and hit, the, hit the accelerator there. A quick question on that one, and this is my system. It's, it's, so again, I'm just fascinated here that we got one of the other common themes that jumps out at me is systems level thinking. Lisa talked about systems level thinking. Mark, you're talking about systems level thinking. I know Kyle, when we get there, we're gonna talk about systems level thinking. But the first thing at a system level that I think about what you just said is if we were at seven gigatons or seven billion tons of consumption at 1900, fast forward to uh, 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 2000, it's 100 gigatons. That's roughly, I'm just round math here, a 10X increase in consumption, right? Now, if I'm just off the top of my head, the population, ratio to that consumption actually illustrates that we're consuming less per person. If I think about the jump in population, which I think is about six or seven X, it's a little, or no, I guess we're consuming more, right? So I'm just looking at the population increase. We're actually consuming more per person uh, in the same same time period. We are, we are. And, and we're, we're set to, in 2050, to hit 100 and, 180 billion tons. So, I mean, that's really, so if, if we're not kind of, so I, I fully agreed with, with Lisa's point. I mean, we have so much kind of in the urban mine, not the virgin mine, that we need to use to basically get um, uh, the, the, the cycle closed. So there's a lot to, to be done there. And the other part we need to take from regenerative systems, but, but it can't be extractive based. And it is today. And we've actually uh, perfected that model for the last 200 years. So it will also be, um, yeah, I mean, it's not an easy feat to, uh, to change that system around, but that's. No, and I, and I think one of the other things that's, that's interesting too, Mark, and I'm going to kind of tie in, I'm going to segue to Kyle here in a second, but, you know, and I'm, I'm going to use this pun intended, but this is the first time in history where one of the other things we're trying to do is make fashionable the use of used and circular materials, right? Up until this point, there was a visceral, emotional tie to buying something new illustrates I'm wealthy and successful, and therefore it makes me feel good, right? And I think that shift is changing. We're seeing it now kind of creep in, certainly with the sharing economy, that impact is very different now. You know, think about people who are now born into cars that aren't really owned anymore, and their thoughts around owning a car versus people who are like my age and older, who owning a car was all about feeling good about themselves. It had to be new, right? Buying a used car at one point in time was seen as like, ooh, that's bad, right? So I think there's also just a philosophical shift we're in the midst of that I think the world from a kind of marketing perspective is, is beginning to hear because you're seeing brands now um, you know, launch with the idea around circularity, around sustainability, around that's not happened before. That's that's happening concurrently, and that's going to drive a lot of the behavior patterns. We're trying to kind of go at the enterprises and things like that, but there's a there's also a big global philosophical shift that's moving towards, hey, it's no longer cool to pull things out of the ground if I don't need to, and making sure everyone understands that. Like They, they begin to associate feeling good with using used stuff, not using new stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to pause it for a second. I'm going to switch over to Kyle because this also then – kind of segues right into circular economy for dummies in the sense of what we've talked about. And we kind of go from Lisa's talking really about at a macro level and kind of getting in, you know, really fundamental, especially from the industry. Mark's got that macro view of kind of what's, you know, why we need to do this sort of stuff. But then also, and we just talked a little bit about the people who are the consumers, but now the businesses, I mean, this is circular economy is not just a feel good, fun, environmental, you know, beat the drum. It actually is a profit first 
strategic advantage decision where you begin to increase profits by moving circular. You get to reduce risk in your supply chain because now all of a sudden you've got a circular supply chain, not a, uh, a brittle linear supply chain that any chain link breaks. Um, you know, circularity has some more you know, uh, uh, legs to it, uh, uh, certainty to it. Uh, and then on top of which, obviously the benefits to the overall sustainability, right? Actually kind of come once we focus on profitability first. So, so let's talk about circular economy for dummies. Like how is that kind of fundamental into the thesis of, of the book itself and, and your own, you know, what got you inspired to write the book? Yeah, the, the inspiration came pretty soon after, um, I'd say probably three years after I even came about the, the term circular economy. Um, I, was, I was desperately looking for some sort of framework that wasn't just sort of limiting itself to what we all know is sustainable, breaking even essentially. If, if we've been doing such harm to the environment and global supply chain for how long now, uh, clearly we have to go to the opposite end of the spectrum, not just sit in the middle of it if we're ever going to sort of offset all of the negative influence that we've had. So um, from coming across the circular economy, I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is that regenerative framework that um, looks to eliminate waste and keep things in circulation. And just by doing that, you can allow the natural environment to regenerate itself. And that's, that's what sustainability in my mind was always missing. Um, I work in the architecture and construction industry. So, you know, we're, we're building the equivalent of New York city every five weeks. That's, that's an absurd amount of, of building materials that we're consuming. But is that just domestic or is that a global? That's global. Wow. So that's, again, every five weeks, New York City is being constructed around the world, which is, uh, it's just astounding to consider that scale. And so really my, my efforts are all aligned with the idea that we have to go beyond sustainable if we're going to be solving the waste generation issue that is associated with architecture and construction. Um, there's a about a 37% waste factor for for every single construction project. So that means that out of all the material that arrives on a construction site, 37% of it is going to end up in the landfill. The rest of it is going to be recycled, and I'd say less than 1% is actually getting reused. But that's that's where our market sits. The the AEC industry. They think that you know sustainability is our our guiding force, and therefore recycling is the best option. And so, really, my my goal within my industry, both in and outside of my nine to five, is to show that the opportunity of reuse is is going to solve a lot of the issues that we're we're experiencing. Supply chain um, costs as well. I mean, goodness sakes, we're we're putting projects on hold now because. Uh, supply chain issues are, are making it nearly impossible to do what we could do even five years ago for the budget that's available. So even though I'm in, in architecture, um, I come from a very systems thinking background. Um, even though I left architecture school because I hated it, I went into the sciences because it made so much more sense. I, I figured out how the world worked. And from that, um, once you, you get to understand how supply chain and system thinking can be organized and designed, then you can look at fashion, you can look at architecture, you can look at technology, pretty much any different market you want to focus on. And it's, it's really the same language, different materials, same language. And so that's what the circular economy for dummies was really all about is me taking time um, and assessing these different markets making it a very digestible message. Um, Circular Economy for Dummies is not supposed to be a textbook. Uh, it's supposed to be very approachable. Um, each chapter is very independent and you're supposed to write as if you're explaining it to your in-laws. So you have to be a little easy with the details, but you also want to you know, make it enjoyable and uh, digestible. So Circular Economy for Dummies was my attempt um, to essentially assess where each market is, uh, what their goals should be, and then what steps need to happen in between to make all of that happen. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a great project and it happened during the pandemic when I had nothing to do. So I was like, all right, this is perfect timing. So yeah, it, it went really well and it's been out for just over a year now. It came out in April of last year. 
Well, A, congratulations. B, the timing, like everyone here in this call, seems to be very auspicious and, and, and you know, chance favors the prepared, as they like to say, right? Uh, but in this case, though, I want to focus on a couple things. One is, you know, the circular economy for dummies, you know, you wrote it, but it's going to have a, it's got a life to it. Right. And the book itself is going to have different, you know, uh, uh, not improvements is the wrong word. Um, you know, when you do the additions or the updates or whatever, like even Dan Stanton, who wrote, you know, uh, a supply chain management for dummies. Right. And he's a friend and family of everyone on here. And we all know Dan. He's awesome. Mr. Supply Chain. Uh, shout out to Dan, by the way, if he's listening. Um, but my point is, even he's just updating his book, I think, the second or third time now. Right. And so I think circular economy based on this whole phone call. Over this next decade, you're going to see even, I imagine in your own head, you're saying a year or two from now, how am I going to update this? What's the new chapter? How am I going to tweak some things? And I go back to what's fundamental in the title is the economy, right? You're looking at a system level of the global economy. Mark's organization has that view of the entire supply chain through the data and the infographic that they you know, uh, have created, right? You know, Lisa's investing to drive that innovation, you know, into that supply chain. But again, I come back to this is an economic driving force, right? And I think that's one of the parts of the conversation that even though all of us here, we've already not only we're, we're making the Kool-Aid, right? I mean, like, like we, not only have we drunk it, we're making it. But why hasn't Pete, why haven't, why has the world picked up on this economic benefit of circularity? Like that's the one that I just beat my head against the wall going, the answer is right in front of us, folks. Like it's staring us in the face, yet we're all chasing around. Like Lisa said, we got the irrational exuberance. We heard supply chain's cool. So we're jumping into the deep end without our ducky waders. We're sinking to the bottom, right? Like what the hell is going on, right? Because we're grasping at these weights, like, you know, decarbonization, which I, 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 that's awesome. But hey, it's much easier if I focus just on circularity, decarbonization will come. And oh, by the way, why don't I focus on profit first? I mean, companies, this is an easy win. I mean, like, let's look at the car industry. Let's look at, uh, you know, Mercedes when they did the uh, recertified, you know, uh, Mercedes that broke the model on selling cars, showed all the automobile manufacturers that they could get in and double dip on selling their car a couple of times. It was a profit first decision, right? So again, I come back to you, Kyle. What, what, just in your own observations, what, it, why is the economic part of circularity kind of like missing from a lot of people? Uh, I can speak, you know, specifically to the architecture industry. The infrastructure is not even close to where it needs to be. Not even close. It's it's so easy to prove that by reselling an existing material that still has a lot of life, both the original owner and the new buyer. They're both going to benefit. Like there's, it's it's stupid simple, but the the opportunity to facilitate that exchange, the opportunity to create an asset document of every living building, and think out ahead. Okay, in five years, I can sell this. Like there's there's all this information that needs to be generated still. Uh, the the infrastructure is just not there. You know, um, there's no easy way for an existing building owner to um, post their building for sale other than, you know, as a whole there, you haven't seen that before. No one's, no one's going through and documenting what materials are in their building and have the ability to post everything for sale for new owners. And, and it's so much more expensive because we're not designing them right in the first place. And I'm already going to, because I can see Lisa chomping at the bit here. I can already see the wheels grinding, right? It's like, this is why she's investing. This is, you're, you're describing the problem statement of a particular vertical that, hey, if someone's got some answers, Lisa's the one to talk to about getting some money and capital to start driving that. But Lisa, let me let me swing over to you on that one. I mean, this is where we're going to yeah. get a group discussion. Like that's, Kyle's bringing up a bunch of what is like, what you're seeing firsthand. This is why we have a community, a fund, and our operating company. And when I first met Brian and I told him, you know, we needed all three, he was a little like, whoa, 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 slow your roll. <laughs> let's, let's just focus on one. And then I've gotten a lot of, uh, you know, people saying, well, little lady, you should just hunker down and focus on one. <laughs> you know, it's hard enough to build a fund. And I'm like, well, we're already doing all three. So if you're not supporting me, you're in my way. And the reason we're doing all three is what Kyle said, there's just no infrastructure. So it doesn't matter how much we're able to invest in the emerging early stage technologies that are going to accelerate this change if nobody is has the infrastructure for them to scale within. 
And so a perfect example is again, regenerative fibers. Um, you know, these, uh, the, the waste management, processing, um, sorting, disassembly, uh, being able to really even just assess what blend is this garment and then how to sort it and then comb and separate and sort the fibers. It's a huge infrastructure <laughs> issue. And so it needs to be a coupling of dollars at the early stage to support these innovations, but we're also simultaneously helping to accelerate the deployment of the infrastructure, working with the most leaned in existing businesses. And they're not gonna be your legacy, like <laughs> your, your big incumbent brands. They're sitting back and saying, spoon feed it to me and show me once it's proven. And so you're sitting here in a perfect storm, as I saw with the fashion industry, the fashion supply chain. It's a $3 trillion global industry, touches one in six people on this planet, one of the biggest polluters, carbon, water, chemicals, slave labor, child labor, all the horrible things. And investors are sitting here going, I don't know it, I don't get it, it's not of interest to me. There's no innovation in fashion. And, and then I'm sitting here seeing there's tons of innovation, just nobody's funding it. And there's a preponderance of female founders who receive less than 2% of all venture capital. So we're in a shit storm, pardon my French, of, of lack of movement. The inertia is so massive. And like most things in my career, I, I'm sitting here going, well, somebody's got to do it. So that somebody happened to be me. And we're making good progress working with existing companies here in the US that have been spinning yarns, uh, you know, regenerating, uh, creating short staple fiber yarns that we can process to give more strength and then weave and knit and cut and sew. They've been in business for 40, 60, 80, 120 years, privately held, you know, able to move fast and want to stay in business for another 100 years. And we're just throwing them a lifeline. It's been seven years of my uh, obsession trying to help pull together all the players that actually can move to make this a reality. It's not an easy thing. There's no like big quick win to be had for venture. And so they're like, eh, but there is such massive upside if you've put in the time and done the work, which me and my team at Refashioned OS have been doing. And we're hoping, well, we're pretty confident that by the end of this year, we'll have some big announcements to be able to prove what's possible and to get at the, according to BCG and Fashion for Good, they had a report in January of 2020, the amount of capital that's needed just in early stage fashion supply chain innovation for the industry to hit the sustainability goals they set for themselves is 20 to $30 billion every year between 2020 and 2030. And I was asked in an article um, shortly after that came out, well, how many billions are being deployed? I was like, oh, no, no. It's maybe hundreds of millions. Too many zeros, right? Like yeah. dollars are being deployed. Maybe hundreds of millions. And I know personally all the people around the globe that are deploying in this space. So if you want to hear something really terrifying, speaking of shiny objects, the metaverse and digital fashion just in 2021, I believe, had 30 billion in capital deployed into it. <laughs> so it's just, we're, we're obsessed with shiny objects and not really realizing that, you know, systems are designed for the outcomes that they produce. It's not like the weather. It doesn't just happen to us. We have to actively design <laughs> for the outcomes we're intending to create. Right, right. And I think, so, so I'm going to swing over to Mark on this because you also, so from Kyle now to Lisa, we kind of, you know, go back into the profitability, right? That this is a, this actually circularity can become more of a business decision. And we've kind of talked on two different, I'll call them verticals, which is constructions and building materials and also fashion, two massive, massive, you know, and apropos, as Kyle's talking about building New York every five to six weeks, there's a backdrop to Lisa that's being built. <laughs> five to six weeks, right? But then, but then Mark, that's when I look at the 105, 106 gigatons of stuff that's consumed of which 8.6% is, you know, circular. 
there's this accumulation of nearly a thousand gigatons of unused, non, whatever we call them, building construction style. And I think fashion's in there. So my question to you, Mark, is I think we've hit two of the biggest opportunities for circularity. I mean, the whole, the whole supply chain is circular. So construction and fashion. What else are you seeing if you verticalize kind of the circularity opportunities as size of markets, you know, in the circularity gap reports or even your own observations casually? Right. Maybe I can I can start also with um, I mean the the, the 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 point you made, Lisa, in terms of basically you single handedly try to connect all of these dots. And what we have been doing a lot as well is work with the financial sector. So from VC, private equity, but also with banks. And I think obviously that whole system is, if any system. Uh, just designed to keep the linear uh, economy um, uh, in the saddle. So what we've tried to do is really to to work with with startup organizations, with banks, with kind of the risk departments, et cetera, and, and really give them a sense, a real sense of these are the organizations we're talking about that are really kind of the next level um, organization shaping this circular economy. But they're small. They need to be uh, scaled up. And I think you're doing an amazing job, Lisa, in supporting those organizations. But unless we can mainstream that and unless we can get kind of these huge volumes of in investment vehicles and, and bigger banks just understand it, appreciate it, change their systems accordingly, we're nowhere because then we basically need to replicate you, Lisa, uh, a million times. But we need to mainstream that. And that has been a, a real big focus um, of, of ours to, to look at. Uh, the other one, which may be a, a little bit less uh, sexy, is kind of tax system. Um, there is a big uh, change here here in Europe in terms of we need to tax labor less and materials more, so that you can um, so that you can design in into your fiscal system, just into your economy, that it is rewarded to repair instead of discard. Um, so that's I think a big lever. Um, Privately owned kind of financial industry needs to, to reward this. Fiscal regimes can change. Um, in, in Europe, quite recently, there was a ban on landfill. And I think other parts in the globe, that's really a far way from that. But those are just kind of incentives that, that are really kind of driving this, um, uh, this system. In terms of volumes, there's so much, um, as I said, in the urban mine uh, rather than the virgin mine that we need to tap into. How much exactly? You, you indeed mentioned the accrued thousand billion tons of stuff that we just have lying around in our landfills. In an average landfill, there's more gold than in a gold mine. So there's just value to be had um, out of that. But we just need to be able to extract it, get it out and really change some of these fundamental systems. And maybe the last thing to say was on your behavioral change and, and the sets of values. The hope I have is, uh, and you mentioned, uh, Lisa, with your teenage daughters, mine is seven years old, but you see that their sets of values couldn't be more different than my parents. I, I feel that I'm st stuck maybe a little bit in between, um, but, but definitely kind of the new generation that's coming, they will value such different things. So that's, I think, the hope you can have in, in terms of really driving that system and accelerating that. So, Mark, you, you, I'm going to connect also with Lisa a little bit. This is something, and I, I'm, I'm, it's a bit anathema to my own like soul to say regulation. So let me just start by saying that it's a little difficult for me. It's even difficult for me to enunciate those words. <laughs> Government involvement. I knew that, Richard. Right, yeah. right. Okay, I'm just going to say that freely, freely disclosed. I'm fully transparent. But that said. What you what you mentioned, Mark, is maybe and I, I mean, not taxes, but maybe there's a credit to enterprises that they could receive if they can prove circularity principles. So again, just top of mind as you were talking through that, I'm a Fortune 2000 company. Now all of a sudden, I get a tax relief to show progress in my circularity in my supply chain. I mean, you want to talk about instantaneous circularity? There you go, right? So that then leads to, well, then how do you measure and demonstrate that? Well, you need some sort of circularity ratio, right? Around what am I buying that's new stuff versus what am I buying that's truly circular, right? And that number today, let's just say it's 100%, I'm consuming stuff out of the ground, but eventually I'd like that to be 50-50 or even 90-10 circular versus new stuff, right? So I'm gonna come back to you, Mark, on that one is, 
you know, how are you guys seeing the use of any kind of metric that we can actually use, right? That like a miles per gallon, like some sort of circularity ratio that's easy and simple and people can rally around it. And then where do you guys come in? Because you're you are at the policy level, right? You guys are interacting with the UN, with the World Economic Forum. You know, uh, your CEO Martin was just in Davos talking about circularity from the circle economy point of view. You know, how do you guys influence maybe that type of thing? So it's a common sense. I mean, Jesus, I can't believe I'm saying this. Common sense regulation, even though that's hard for me to say, um, but it actually makes sense. Like, where are you guys on that, Mark? Yeah. Well, I mean, as I mentioned, so. The global report is putting a metric on our global economy, but we have been translating that to a business, a value chain, um, a city, a country. Um, and I think that's really where it becomes very interesting. And it's actually not just one metric, but a whole set of metrics that that starts to calculate kind of what is your circularity of your inflow versus what is kind of the circularity of your outflow? How can you measure that? How can you also kind of set targets just on the business level in terms of keeping yourself accountable, but also seeing where to invest, how to prioritize? We were talking to a waste processing company today and they have no clue. I mean, they they basically go from one opportunity to the other, but they don't really have a sense because they can't measure and therefore they can't track. So we have been implementing that um, in the last two years, we're part indeed, as you mentioned, of some of these international fora, like the Circle, Circular Economy Indicator Coalition, where we try, try to shape these sets of indicators for specific industries with the idea to just kind of engage in target setting and, and measuring progress. Mm-hmm. Got it. And that's that's a perfect kind of like, again, jumping point over to Kyle, which again, we've kind of, t- Mark brings up you know, again, measurements and things like that, but also references the technology world, right? That's sort of my my former world as a big kind of user need for circularity. You know, we're seeing all these data center designs, trying to get into circular hardware equipment. I mean, I can go off and off and off on that one. But Kyle, I want to come back to your roots though, which is construction and building materials, right? That's still, I think, you know, Lisa referenced 3 trillion in fashion in that industry, which again, that's another thing to point out here. And, and, and Lisa can give a sermon on this, which is, Anytime you're looking at an investment, people want to first say, well, how big is the market? If you're looking at anything supply chain, it's a trillion dollar market. Like, like, like that's the other thing that blows my mind, right? Like, it's not billions, it's like 20 billion, eh, whatever, right? I mean, we're dealing with trillions, right? This is the world economy we're talking about at a supply chain level. So let me come back to construction. I still think that's the largest market segment within the world economy today. And Kyle, you probably know this. And, you know, again, if we're building New York every five to six weeks, how does how do you see circularity? Right. First of all, how big is the market from your perspective? And then secondly, where is it today on that kind of timeline of moving into circular? Because you're trying to push that right now. You're trying to get this re- like cement has got great carbon scoring for whatever reason. I don't know why the cement industry, but they become the carbon scores of the you know the experts. Um, but the building materials themselves, like you said, like reusing, uh, for example, you know, I've talked about carpet or just the steel or whatever. So first question, how big is the construction world from your perspective, right? Because I think it's huge. And then secondly, you know, talk a little bit about the specifics that you're seeing today that are kind of catalyze that circularity. Yeah, the the specific dollar value tied to the industry, I have no idea, to be honest. Um I'll I'll write that one down to go look at. Well, the world economy, just to put it in perspective, you know, if you measured it by GDP, is about hundred trillion dollars, give or take, right? So that that that's your baseline, right? So right. anything off that hundred trillion is a segment of it. So if Lisa's talking about fashion at three, roughly speaking, which still sounds huge, that's only three percent of the world economy. My suspicion is building materials and construction is closer to like thirty or forty percent of that, you know, hundred trillion. Right. I don't know that. That's just my, you know. <laughs> inference from looking at a lot of data for a lot of time, but I know it's huge. Yeah, without a doubt, it's it's massive. And it's, um, like I mentioned earlier, it's growing steadily every single year. Um, and to maybe no one's surprise, it'll actually be the Southern Hemisphere that has the most growth in terms of the built environment in the next 50 years, more, more so than the Northern Hemisphere. And you're, because of that, you're surprising. thinking South America, Africa, and then a lot right. of the sort of the Southeastern Asian, so South a lot China. Yeah. Right. And so that that was kind of a surprise to me. Um, and so I'm, I'm still figuring out all of these projections of the future. But when it comes to me doing the best I can to incorporate circular principles into our processes, 
Um, the first, first, I always call it the phase out phase because we're, we need to begin addressing which materials are no longer allowed to play the game. Like we're, we're still using concrete on every single building, but it's the worst as it relates to embodied carbon. There's no next use for concrete. Once it's been demolished, you can maybe break it down and use it into, um, you know, gravel or, or whatever, but it's nothing valuable. There's no upcycling concrete. So the phase out phase, when I'm talking with our, our internal design teams as well, as well as the owners is okay. What, what materials actually make sense? And there's the whole debate about embodied carbon. I always like to include um, the variable of time um, because it's, it's the, when we look at embodied carbon and we do life cycle analyses and we're comparing building materials we don't ever see over time. It's always in its innate place, this very minute, how much energy has gone in to create this. But we don't ever look at the potential offset by choosing a durable material, even if it has a higher embodied carbon content than something that like um, mass timber, which is, is a durable, relatively durable structural material. Um, it has a lower embodied carbon, but it, it's never gonna match up to steel. Steel can last for hundreds of years if you if you use it correctly. Mass timber can't do that. Um, so it's it's these discussions then of of doing the life cycle analyses of these different materials, comparing them over time, and then there's the whole supply chain issue that that is tying in and making this so much more difficult. Um, things that we were able to get our hands on in a couple of weeks are now taking six months. And so again, this is just driving the need to keep materials that we actually have already in use rather than, you know, uh, pat ourselves on the back for recycling it and just going out and buying something new, the same thing we just had. So there's, there's no, no marketplace for that, which, you know, is, is what I'm really trying to drive forward at this point. I think that's the, the gap currently between where we are and where we should be. So it's, it's just amazing to see that we're still doing this, that we, we, every single large architecture firm, the large firm roundtable, all 50 of them, they, they claim that they, they know what sustainable design is, but they're at best recycling three quarters of the materials and letting the, the rest go to the landfill. Nothing sustainable about that because they're not looking at the whole life cycle. What, what good is a solar panel? How is a solar panel or mass timber recycle a sustainable material if it ends up in the landfill? Like it just doesn't make any sense. We think we're doing so much better than we are and we can be further from the truth. So I mean, it's a lot of growth to, to take place still. Oh, hundred percent. And, and again, I, one thing I don't want to fly over without kind of circling back to how we started. And, and even though we've kind of been talking about it, but system level thinking, you know, you referenced a view of the Southern hemisphere and everyone on this call, we're talking at a global level when we talk about the supply chain and as Lisa, and I'm going to come back to Lisa in a second here, this is another thing where it's just like, if you're not thinking globally about the supply chain, and the supply chain is one massive thing that is a true system, and this is the whole reason that I've been a huge fan of Mark's work at Circle Economy with that infographic. It's the first and only infographic I've seen that depicts human being supply chain in aggregate. That's what we're tuning. And if you're as a supply chain investor, practitioner, participant, which we all are, by the way, if you're not thinking about that system, then you're not thinking in the context of the right way to solve things, right? And so I kind of want to swing all the way back into to Lisa because building off of talking about building, talking about circularity, talking about the economic. And again, I want to also be conscious of time here. We're going to kind of wind down, but you know, some thoughts here, Lisa, as you look forward a little bit, you know, we all want to get drive to circularity, but you know, then we've talked about some of these missing pieces, you know, but what are you seeing coming up maybe this year or the next 12 months, you know, that, that, you know, you're focused on to help, like, what's that next step, right? Because it's now, I feel like we're at a transition period right now. It feels to me as if all this work we've been doing, all of us collectively for the last four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years is starting to come to a head, right? Yeah. People are starting to come to you. I know, Lisa, you're, you know, booked out like months in advance just because yeah. you've been doing this for so long. And finally, people are picking up the phone saying, Lisa, how do I do this? Right. So, so what yeah. are you seeing over the next 12 months in our March towards 50% circularity? I think people are starting to understand that you cannot continue to try to uh, make this billion headed beast sustainable and circular, like node by node, vendor by vendor, <laughs> partner, but it's just insanity. So the approach that I think 
and I'm focused on is starting with constraints and really being able to define the circular inputs and the systems that will support, like start with your MVP, folks. What is the one fiber that we have in massive abundance here in the US that can be circularly regenerated? Let's focus on the infrastructure needed to support that scaling. And we don't even need to build entirely new infrastructure from the ground up. We can partner with, if we have the, the audacity to truly be collaborative and humble and say, we need to do this together. <laughs> I don't have all the answers. No one's going to build a walled garden that is the holy grail solution. It has to be a collaboration. So the constraints of your localized region is where everyone should start because the only certainty is that we're going to have increasing risk requiring increasing agility, resiliency, redundancy, because the pandemic, these wildfires, forced mass migrations, it's all symptoms of the root cause of the climate crisis. And so the only certainty is that we need to focus on what we can produce locally, what are the most needed, uh, most ubiquitous materials that can be circularly regenerated and turned into viable products that every consumer needs. Start there and then layer on your um, infinite optionality that, you know, primarily first world country consumers desire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so, and, and I'm going to, again, conscious time here, so I'm going to kind of sort of wind things down a bit, but like swinging over to you, Mark, I mean, Lisa brings up a ton of points here around what you guys are kind of tracking. I mean, it, it, I feel like the circle economy, your group in particular, really is starting to kind of come to the forefront as far as tracking data. That circularity gap report is going to help illustrate this. How does the circularity gap report evolve kind of to Lisa's point to help frame up the macro, which is here we are in the 8.6 and we want to get to 50%, but then on the micro, which is to Lisa's point, is you know where a lot of the solutions are going to actually come from. Because if you try to tune the whole system at once, that's probably too big of a pill to swallow. So we're going to have to take bite-sized pieces, which is kind of the micro-economies or localities, if you will, to Lisa's point. Right. I mean, we, we have two tracks. The one is, I, I just mentioned, so translating these metrics really to all different scales of the economy. So from an, a small and medium-sized business to a value chain to the globe. And the other one is also to leverage digital technology in terms of sourcing more of these data points that we require to get better quality data, uh, which will um, uh, provide kind of better insights and where to steer and where to correct for. So, so those would be kind of the two, two leverage points I would mention. Translate it to every different level and leverage digital technology to get better at it uh, and, and more kind of agile to see where to, um, uh, where, where to respond and where to fix. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, but and there's also another point, and, and I, sorry, but, but Lisa, you, I just pumped in my head here. But something else that Lisa also talks about that I think is fundamental to all of us achieving this goal, which is collaboration, openness, transparency. Right? We're in a different world, and and businesses need to understand that the world of the scarcity model is dead. Right? We are in a world of abundance. We are in a universe of abundance. Right. And circularity actually allows us to go in that direction. Right. And in fact, the industries and businesses that are succeeding, and I can't prove this anecdotally over the last 10 to 20 years, are the ones who've embraced collaboration. Right. You know, versus the killer be killed and keep everything private. I'm never going to talk to anybody. And everything I speak about in my company is a top secret and, you know, blah, 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 blah. We can't do that. We can't do that collectively. Right. And so there's a, there's a, business shift philosophically in the conversations around collaboration that I think is so important. And we don't talk enough about that, right? This is not going to be one by one company, right? This is a collaboration. It's all of us. It's all of our supply chain, right? So I'm going to kind of, again, I want to wind down here, but Mark, I mean, is that, as you think about that, maybe there's a third leg to the stool, right? Which is not just circularity as far as the macro and the micro, but then what are the kind of philosophical shifts emotionally? You know, circularity has got to be cool, right? Um, businesses need to collaborate. How, how do you lay out the tapestry of what the environment needs to be, you know, almost in a collaboration kind of manifesto, right? Because we won't get to the ones you're talking about unless there's collaboration. 
Right. No, I mean, absolutely essential that that point of collaboration. And I, I fully agree with you that anecdotally, you see that the ones that, that are really successful are the ones that are best able to do that. Maybe pointing out one thing, and that's, um, and I think I mentioned this two weeks ago with you, Richard, that some companies may be quite circular and are not aware that they are. Uh, I, I mentioned Spotify uh, often in that example that have really dematerialized kind of listening to music, not having kind of racks full of CDs, et cetera, that you need to lug around, produce, et cetera. So you, pro- you provide a better product that's less material intensive. And I think we, we really should embrace also marketeers. Actually, I, I just came from an event with how can designers be part of this change? And they're crucial whether they're fashion designers, product designers, all of those. So really the power of of marketing, but also good product and service design is absolutely essential to to make this transition as well. And and I think that also touches on that point of collaboration. Absolutely. And that's going to lead me right to Kyle. And and, and I'm going to allow you to kind of wind things up here a little bit. A lot of fodder here for the updates to the book. Right. Circular economy for dummies. you got some experts in here that, that are going to be relied upon. These are all the players amongst others that are out there kind of doing this stuff. But even for you looking forward, right, um, you know, how do how do you or take what you've kind of experienced with the current book and then look forward? You know, what are you thinking about in the context of circular economy for dummies? Right. Like, how is that conversation going to evolve over the next 12 to 24 months? Right. Because I think you're also at a very you're at the foundational level priming the pump, so to speak, for some other advanced conversations. But the whole point is everyone should read this book and just go, yeah, I get it at a basic level. But then eventually people are going to come back to you like, okay, Kyle, what's next? What's next on the, you know, what's the next chapter? How do I achieve this? How do I get profitability? How do I work with, you know, Lisa in refashion and get funded so that I can get my technology into this thing to make those changes? Like, what what are you envisioning in the next 12 months as far as the economy? You've you've touched on the key point that I think would really be at the heart of any any update that I made to the book. Um, our goal when writing it was really to give examples as many examples as possible. We we spoke with hundreds of companies, um, anywhere from Intel to the first um, circular retailer, um, fashion retailer, Borrow Baby um, in the U.S. So a whole range of companies, and we did our best to just provide as many as examples as humanly possible, low hanging fruit of here's a way you can simply adjust the way you um, function as a company and begin harnessing the power of what is the circular economy. So I think the next level um, is really evolving beyond that, that simple format of making it digestible and easy and not overwhelming to, to switch a business structure altogether. Um, into how do you make it happen? I think tying in with the the financing options, the 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 government incentives, um, or the the fines that come with you not being circular, um, like uh, the state of New York and the state of Massachusetts um, often ca- offer carbon penalties now for buildings and their emissions, and I, I very much see something similar happen. Um, as it relates to the embodied carbon of your your building. So I think it, it gets down to rather up to a, a bigger um, scale, I think would be the next evolution of of the book. Um, instead of individual examples, sort of that that bird's eye view of of the larger network at play and sort of what what levers need to be pulled and when. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well I'm gonna I'm gonna Great ending point. We're a little bit bleeding over. I honestly, I knew with each of you individually and Lisa, you've been meeting for the first time, but I, I, you know, an hour with each one of us is not enough, right? I think we could go for a long, long time. I, I first just want to thank all of you for taking some time to participate again, you know, every year checking in an international supply chain day. And again, to reiterate, the day itself is just it's just a day, but the day we wanted to meet to it, we wanted to track how are we doing in the march towards 50% circular. And I think that creates some a very easy soundbite for people to rally around. Uh, you know, Mark and organization has got the data with which that is going to be tracked. I think Lisa, you know, represents not only in, in, in investing, but also a thought leader that's kind of the new generation of not even new generation, but really, you know, thinking long about supply chain, which I, again is a Silicon Valley X, you know, I can, you know, agree with you hundred percent, like, like 
the, the investment world and the private equity world don't really understand supply chain because it kind of is, it's a little bit more private equity in the way it feels and looks, but it requires a venture capital mindset uh, to actually invest in early stage, you know, pre-seed stage kind of stuff. And then Kyle, of course, you know, coming along and, and putting a book together that really says this is an economic force, right? Circularity is an economic force. I think that's a key point to, to, to transition the conversation from a feel good, you know, environmentalist kind of thing, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But really, this is this is economics first, folks, right? Like if, if, if we were to impress your board with one thing, circularity is not a frilly, fun feeling. It's actually a strategic initiative that drives profitability and de-risks your company, right? And if you're not speaking that at the board level, you're missing out on that one. So, and again, kind of coming around, making sure that we check in with everybody. Um, we're going to, this has obviously been live. Uh, we're going to post this podcast up in a few days. Of course, everyone can have access to it and do all that. But again, just, it's been awesome, a pleasure and honor to have all of you here. Um, it's really great that we all stay in touch. Uh, so we'll just keep staying in touch. We'll keep collaborating, keep the conversation going. Um, and, and hopefully this also stimulates even amongst all of us here, some individual things that might happen, right? I already see Mark and Lisa. I can see some data exchanges some investment things going on there. I can see some data from, you know, and a, a chapter about investing in supply chain technologies in an updated book with Kyle and Lisa participating. So really awesome. Thanks everyone so much. Amazing. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. 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 Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this episode or topics on supply chain, you'd like us to cover, you can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud while collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at Requis.com.